This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. It's the economy that matters. And Dr. Kavita Patel. Nothing makes me more angry than talking about Herschel Walker. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms, which are closer than ever, and what our leaders are saying and doing or not saying and doing about them. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Norm, how are you doing today? Well, uh, I'm getting increasingly nervous about these elections, Kavita. <laughs> well, uh, for good reason. <laughs> with very good, good reason, reason, unfortunately. There's always an ebb and flow of issues that matter, things that are up on the radar screen. We had several weeks where there was a dramatic turnaround from what looked like it could be a Republican route in November, what often happens with midterms, especially with Democratic presidents. We saw it with both Obama and uh, Clinton before that. But then the Dobbs decision turned everything around. And how much that enthusiasm for voters to make that the dominant issue will be there weeks after that decision. And now we're seeing in a number of surveys, it's the economy that matters and the decision by the Saudis to shut off two million barrels of oil production each day starting immediately. That means gas prices could be going up. All of that makes me nervous about races across the board. And even in Senate races that we thought were looking pretty good, you've got to be a little careful. Maybe if just to make me feel good, uh, we can start with the uh, what might be billed as one of the best debates I've watched in a long time. And maybe I've just gotten cynical about the utility of debates, but I, I got to be honest that Tim Ryan, J.D. Vance, certainly enough has been probably memed and said on Twitter, but have to cover at least the fact that I, I do think Tim Ryan's running probably one of the best campaigns I've seen. And certainly a culmination of that was reflected in that debate. So we can talk about, you know, Senate in Ohio. I'm confident we're going to touch on our favorite in Pennsylvania, but we'll t- let's talk about, you know, we can talk, we can cover North Carolina, Utah, Nevada. There's a number of races. Tell me what you thought, at least of the Ryan Vance showdown in Ohio. So you're right. I've rarely seen a debate so one-sided. Ryan just filleted J.D. Vance. And then you look this week as J.D. Vance went on television again to basically say he uh, sided more with Putin than he did with Zelensky. He's not supportive of Ukraine. And we have this tweet reemerging in the aftermath of Alex Jones being hit with nearly a billion dollars damages for his loathsome participation in lies about Sandy Hook with a tweet that he did a year ago that's still up, basically siding with Alex Jones as a credible force. Put all of that together and you would think, how can this loathsome character, J.D. Vance, win? But then we have to remember that we're in a tribal era. The qualities of candidates, the integrity of candidates may matter less than whether he's one of us or one of them. And Ohio still leaning Republican. And it's uh, not a great feeling about that race, although I think Ryan is so superior as a candidate. And then keep in mind as well that for reasons that baffle me, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats have not poured the kind of money into that race. Vance hasn't raised much money, but the outside money coming in is astonishing. And of course, they're going to slime Ryan all over the place. 
there is that MAGA Inc. There is that group. You're right. The Republican Party and the Senate Leadership Fund has not put as much into it. But I've been following. You probably followed the MAGA Inc. You know, the uh, Trump. Now, it's not it's not huge dollars, but still worth noting that they're putting at least what seems like the bulk of the funds that they have in Pennsylvania and Ohio, right? It seemed, or at least a couple of days ago, that was the case. And so you've got McConnell, or you've got the Senate Leadership Fund. I think they've put through, uh, according to just some reports I read on NPR and some other sources, I think something on the odds of like $55 million in TV ads in some of these key races. But you're right, they have not poured that into Ohio, which is a bit surprising. So uh, tell me tell me where you want to go. Notice I left out Georgia because I'm really just t- like nothing makes me more angry than talking about Herschel Walker. So I'm leaving that out, but we can go back. I thought talking about uh, Cortez Masto, who I really like, Nevada could be a good one. Tell me what you're thinking about some of these other races I mentioned or any other ones. Let's talk about Pennsylvania for a minute because I've rarely been as angry about uh, (laughs) television news than the absolutely awful report done on the nightly news, which was completely misleading. And it was almost as if NBC nightly news had been taken over for a day by the Dr. Oz campaign, going after Fetterman because he was using closed captioning in the aftermath of a stroke, which has kept him completely lucid, but with auditory processing issues where he can't always make out what people are saying. I had a son who at a young age had auditory processing issues, and I know that that is, it has nothing to do with your intellect, your innate capabilities, where you are in your brain right now, except for that one element. And it was just a a slimy piece The race has tightened, as they have in so many places, for one reason in particular, which is as you get closer to an election, people begin to move back to their partisan identities, and in this case, tribal identities. The stroke has made a difference, and we're going to have one debate coming up before long, and that could be pivotal in that race. I still think Fetterman wins. He hits all of the right points for Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is not red. It's more pinkish blue and closer to blue, but you got to be nervous uh, because of the impact of that stroke. And I do think that uh, Fetterman himself, I was watching after I saw that, I was watching MSNBC kind of kind of post nightly news, you know, into the evening. I think he did two shows that night. Maybe I know at least I caught Mehdi Hassan uh, hosted Lawrence O'Donnell. He ca- I caught a couple of the shows and let's put it this way. There's still so much real estate between now and the actual like election date. So I actually I, I wished what he had done that day, not on nightly news, but certainly on his other appearances and the ones I caught live. I think he did exactly. He went through the interviews. He was appropriate. He had a couple of those kind of word fumbles where he actually pointed it out and said, look, see, that's a good example where I had a word and I just am a little slower to kind of respond as quickly, but it has nothing to do with the way I'm thinking about things. He's like, sometimes my, I think you, I'm paraphrasing. He's like, sometimes my thoughts don't actually match the words. Then we see that in stroke patients. So he was owning it and it's what he needed to do, but you're right. It was, it was disgusting. And my, the entire time I kept coming up with all the things that Oz had been doing that drove me crazy with nobody holding him accountable yet again. Right. This is uh, this is like another, a good one. 
which state should we wander to next? Well, let's, got- let's talk Nevada for a minute. You mentioned it. Look, we're in a situation where Republicans have many more seats up this time. You remember the Senate, it's a third that's up than do Democrats. So they have more innate vulnerabilities. The one Democratic held seat that is most vulnerable is Nevada. When Harry Reid was alive, he was always able to mobilize enough voters just to pull it over the went for uh, Biden by a relatively small number of votes. But what we know now is that a lot of the Hispanic voters in Nevada have, because of conservatism on social issues, have become a little more Republican, and the economy is not doing great right now in Nevada. So Cortez Masto, who's a, a very good senator, has some issues. Now, the one thing that happened in Nevada yesterday, though, that warmed my heart was 14 members of Adam Laxalt's family, that's the Republican running against Cortez Masto, said that they were supporting Cortez Masto. It's reminiscent of what happened with Paul Gosar, one of the worst and most loathsome members of the House, who had almost his entire family denounce him. So maybe that will make a difference. Maybe that will. I do want to point out, it's something we've spoken about, just to add to this a little bit, a couple of things. We've talked about Latinos and just in general, the demographics, not just shifting in the United States overall, but the Republicans kind of attempts with some of the Texas candidates around Latinos. And, and I continue to feel, have felt for a long time, as you have, that they're an important group to watch. I went back kind of over like several elections, not just the ones that included her, but You'll recall the election that Jeff Flake won, where they put up Rich Carmona, former Bush Surgeon General, Latino, and he lost. And, and I think what was actually like, you know, considerably close-ish race, but they have in the past, Latinos as a growing demographic and a group that has been brought into the vote more effectively in Nevada, just like in Arizona with Flake and Carmona, they've been able to bring voters to tip the balance towards Democrats. But now Republicans are on the ground and from friends I have on the ground on political circles, they have said that they've been actually able to use the kind of presence of Latinos as registered voters, even if they have registered as D's, but many are mostly independent registered, to appeal to them to say that all of these ill effects, you know, Cortez Masters of supportive like the pandemic and kind of the harsh anti-police movement, et cetera that that has brought out this frustration amongst Latinos. So it'll be interesting. This gets back to, we've talked about this and we've had guests on in the past that have talked about turnout, right? This isn't turning out, turning out of necessarily new, never voted voters. This is turning out base. This is turning out base voters. And that Cortez Masto has been doing more Spanish language ads and, and has been doing that for a while, but is getting more and more traction in the Latino community. But will that get out the vote locally. And that's the question that I think we're all watching. You know, let's face it, Democrats for a long time took the Latino vote for granted and believed that the immigration issue was a pivotal one. It doesn't work with a whole lot of those voters. And it's not a Latino vote. It's a Mexican American vote. It's a Venezuelan American vote. It's a whole host of different kinds of voters from different places that are not at all the same. And what we're also seeing now to a degree, and this you mentioned in Texas, is that the one group that was the most supportive of Democrats, the Mexican-American community, is now more variegated and less inclined to be reflexively for Democrats than we'd anticipated in the past. 
It's not as true in California as it is in other states, but we're seeing it in Texas and Nevada. And it's going to be a factor in several states uh, in this election. All right, where to next? Should we do more? I mean, there's plenty more to talk about. On well, the let's talk side. about a couple of sleeper races that matter. One is North Carolina. And, you know, my dear friend E.J. Dion had a very interesting column the other day saying this is a key race to watch. Sherry Beasley, the former chief justice of the state, an extraordinarily attractive figure running against a Trumpist named Ted Budd. This is an open seat. The incumbent, Richard Burr, retiring. It's a tough state for Democrats to win, North Carolina. But you also have an awful lot of college-educated suburban voters in the Research Triangle area and around Charlotte, where Dobbs may make a difference. And that would be a race, if Democrats won it, where I think it would make it a steeply uphill battle for Republicans to win the Senate. Another race that I'm watching very closely is in Utah. I actually had a conversation a couple of days ago with Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen is a very conservative guy running as an independent, but has always been a strong reformer. He is a Mormon. He is a veteran. He's running against Mike Lee, who is one of the most radical members of the Senate and who was uh, basically all in with Trump on the January 6th insurrection. And in a very Republican state where McMullen is running as an independent, he is in the most recent poll a couple of points ahead. He is at least within striking distance. And Lee, and this is critical for an incumbent, is well below 50%. Now, McMullen is not going to vote as a liberal, but I think it is very, very likely if he won this seat that he would vote for the Democrat for a majority leader in the Senate. And that would be huge. I can't help but go local with a house race. Abigail Spanberger certainly been on an incredible, I would say the last like four to five days have been interesting at at best. Should we be bracing for what I think the Post has called more of these like quote unquote October surprises, right? We're in the home stretch here. So Spanberger, I think, had a pretty on the um, right side of the media. There was a lot made out of her quote unquote attacks on Nancy Pelosi. I will offer having spent time with her. I think that what she's doing is also very effective at kind of putting forward what I think her constituents have reflected, their own frustration with parts of the Democratic Party. But then also really doing, she's going pretty, since I'm in the local media, and I'm sure you're getting some of this too, airing these ads, you know, former Republican Denver Riggleman and some of the, how she is trying to let these ads and for like a politician like her, whether former or current, to you know, star in another politician's campaign ad using Riggleman, I, I think is less about Spanberger's bipartisanship than it is actually Riggleman telling Virginia Republicans, you guys need to like get your act together and we need to kind of define what we really stand for in a way. Anyway, I do think this is a really interesting race. Tell me your thoughts, Norm, and just uh, whether I'm putting too much attention on the, on the ads I'm seeing. <laughs> No, I I think you're right. And of course, you know, living in this area with the media market, you cannot watch television without seeing a spate of ads for Spanberger and her opponent, Yasli Vega. Vega has a great human story, immigrant, you know, Latina, uh, having some success. But the reality, of course, is that she is a radical Trumpist who is particularly over on the 
one end of the spectrum on the abortion issue. And it's not just Spanberger, but independent ads that have really hit Vega on that front. This is a, a key race in terms of what happens in the House. I agree with you, Spanberger is a, an extraordinarily impressive member of the House and one of that key group of people, of women who have a background in foreign affairs and in the military, who have really had an impact. Uh, Alyssa Slotkin is another one of those in Michigan, another race that we're watching closely. And then there's another race in Virginia with Elaine Luria, which is probably a little bit more of a, a struggle for Democrats even than Spanberger. But, you know, if Democrats have a chance of holding the House, they have got to win seats like Spanberger and Luria. They're vulnerable members. And also, if you want to have the most impressive Democratic caucus that you can have, these are people you really want to be in the game. And uh, they're critical contests. And Spanberger, I think, is probably doing a little bit better. But we have to remember that Virginia went all the way red in that midterm election last year when Glenn Youngkin won. And they also took the lieutenant governorship, the attorney general position, and a whole lot of others. So there's nervousness about where Virginia is going. And it also has implications for 2024. Well, that's why I bring up Spanberger. I'm a huge fan of hers. But even if I were not a huge fan of hers, I think watching Virginia and Pennsylvania, like the reason we've been talking about the kind of Oz Fetterman race is because they are bellwethers and, and they're bellwethers for different reasons, because there's so much to unpack about what that could mean for 24. But I also think they're refl- they represent some of these, in my mind, like the America of 2022 in, in many ways, on some levels, these rural pockets, these aspects where You can be in one state and find these kind of incredible insular communities that tend to be pretty homogeneous in the votes, including the suburbs of Fairfax and Arlington, Virginia. And then you see this incredible like melting pot, which is what's more, I think, indicative of the United States in those exact same state races. So I'm very eager to follow this through. We have, as as just a promise to listeners, Next week, what we will hopefully try to do is not only we'll have more data because there's a lot of real estate between now and then in terms of what politicians are doing and saying, but we will maybe perhaps go kind of by Senate and House and try to break down where we think we, and Normie, I know you're getting calls and I certainly get calls more on like the, how should candidates talk about, you know, pandemics and things like that. But I think it would be interesting to compare notes about where we think the candidates are in terms of their campaigns and what they would sh- they should be doing in this final push. What needs to happen to get people across the line or get them closer to the line? And then um, a couple of, uh, I think it was EJ that also said this, and I think you may have said this on, a, on our friends, uh, the Deep State Radio podcast. This is what we expect on some level, Norm, to have these races be so close. It just shows you we're getting closer. So there is some aspect of this that's somewhat predictable but I would not have predicted at least the continuing, like not just the Oz kind of factor, for example, in Pennsylvania, but I, you know, Max Rose, Josh Riley, like some of these house races where there should not be, it should not be this close. And I think that's more of a reflection and we can try to break some of that down for listeners next week and the week after. Absolutely. And uh, the house has always been an uphill battle for Democrats to keep their majority. The majority, of course, is razor thin. We know that there are about 30 House races that most of the prognosticators who follow this most closely have said are in the toss-up range. 
the vast majority of those seats are ones held by Democrats. If Democrats are to keep the House, they almost have to run the table. Now, one thing we can say more generally, Kavita, is that what usually happens in a midterm election is that when you get down to the final point, the races tend to tip one way. Whatever wind is blowing in the end, it's swirling around right now. If it turns out that it's Dobbs and we're really looking at a huge turnout from women and others who are just frightened to death about where we're going, not just with abortion, but contraception and same-sex relationships, if that works well, then Democrats could win most of these close races and hold on. And that would be huge, not just for 2023, but for where the Republican Party goes in its aftermath. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. All right. So let's now maybe then let's close out uh, on this note of what we can look forward to over the next several weeks on the podcast. But we will get into some of the I know we wanted to touch on some local races, state, local, regional, state attorney general races. We'll cover that in our bonus content. But I want to thank our public members, public listeners for listening to us. Hope they join as members. And it would be incredibly helpful to rate and review, subscribe and access our feed, access our podcast on your favorite feeds. And we also hope you can share this episode on social media. And if you like it and want more of the conversation, just become a member of the DSR network. It is no more than a pumpkin spice latte, if that's what's calling your mood in this kind of rainy, dreary Washington, D.C. fall day that Norm and I find ourselves recording on. So Words Matter is the production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cotnor, and our producer of this excellent show is our wonderful Grant Haver. And our next episode will be in your podcast feeds in a week on October 20th. See you then.